Hello again, listeners to Community Voices on Radio Northern Beaches. This is Michael Lester. Our guest today, Ben Schneiders, is an investigative journalist uh, of many years uh, standing and a Walkley Award winner, works with The Aid, who specializes in workplace issues, industrial relations issues, and they're the sort of things we're going to be talking about with him today, based on his book, which was published uh, late last year by Scribe, and the book is called Hard Labor wage theft in the age of inequality. In this time and age of, of a very flat line wages that we've had for a long time, as we know, in, in real levels, and, and, and we still haven't uh, got back to decent wage growth, we also at the same time, as Ben outlines in his book, been going down this path for quite a long period, uh, and a period too that's resulted in uh, and been paralleled with growing inequalities in, in not only income in Australia, but in wealth. Of course, there's an obvious relationship between wages and between income uh, inequalities and wealth. So thanks for joining us on Radio Northern Beaches, Ben. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, ben, yours is, is quite a remarkable story based on, I think you must have been working for at least the last seven or eight or nine years as an investigative journalist writing many hundreds of stories, I believe, about wage theft in Australia. And and, and it reveals a, a very sy- systemic problem, not one that you could put down to individual employers who either willingly or unwillingly uh, have been underpaying their workers. This is a very systemic and widespread issue. And you tell this story very analytically based on a lot of research, but also on hundreds of interviews and many very vivid individual stories. How did you first break into this in- uh, issue yourself in your work? Prior to me becoming an investigative reporter at The Age in about 2015, I'd had a background reporting on industrial relations for four or five years. I'd I'd covered the introduction of the fair work laws just after the period when the Howard government lost over that issue and work choices. So I had a background in the area. So I knew a lot of the participants in industrial relations. I knew how the system worked. During that time, I was a, a daily reporter. There wasn't much focus. There weren't many cases brought to my attention or that I was aware of of wage theft. But years later, in 2015, when I started having more time on my hands as an investigative reporter, more time to dig. I started looking really the wages and conditions of temporary migrants, a lot of people of Chinese background and from Southeast Asia. And it became quickly apparent there was big issues around underpayment, mistreatment, harassment and the like. So that really kicked that off. And from there, it became a journey whereby over... Like you said, over six, seven years, I just I kind of moved from one sector or issue or scandal to another where you would you would find repeated instances across the low wage economy of people being underpaid, sometimes significantly, and many, many other issues around mistreatment or harassment or exploitation. It was hard to not look at this and to see whether it was on farms or in hospitality or in nail salons or in fast food or retail, that these issues of non-compliance with the law weren't just individual incidents, they were systemic. There were deep-rooted drivers of this that were causing people to not pay their legal entitlements. Uh, but it's a story that spans across um, some of the largest companies in Australia, McDonald's and Coles and 7-Eleven and Woolworths. But it also reveals wage theft issues by major banks and also in the smaller end of town, but still there with the low wage economy at high end restaurants and in farms and horticulture and poultry. Uh, you mentioned just now that you originally got into this by looking at the migrant issues. So may- maybe that's a place to start. The stories there that you tell uh, are the stories of um, in the farming sector. What's the story there with the 
migrant, often undocumented workers uh, and the conditions under which uh, you found they'd been working underpaid and often exploited and in the most terrible of conditions. Yeah, it's in many ways this is a this is really a, something that's developed over over decades. It's not like something that's just sprung up overnight. The working conditions in Australian farms have gone have changed dramatically over decades. The pandemic changed things to some degree. You had a workforce that was that was marked by various degrees of precariousness. At the bottom of that is what you call, you know, the undocumented workers, and they might be people who have come here whose visa has expired, who have come here without a visa and are working on farms and really playing a, a pretty a game of chicken, trying to avoid the authorities, trying to deal with unscrupulous middle people, uh, middlemen, and being paid quite often lamentably low rates of pay, handfuls of dollars an hour. You know, they'd be paid what are called peace rates. You know, you, you paid for how much you picked. And that was largely at the discretion of the employer. So someone could pick a lot of fruit or a lot of, or a lot of, a lot of whatever, and, and might just end up with a day's work once the deductions are made from their accommodation, which will be run by a middleman, from the buses, and from the, and from the amount of work that they've done with three, four, five dollars an hour. And they've got very little recourse to complain to authorities, uh, because they might not be here lawfully. And then there would be backpackers laid on top of that who thrown into Australian farms. And, and other forms of people on, on temporary migrant visas. It was a real mishmash of different visas and different systems. What was a feature across it on farms and elsewhere was really in a pretty striking imbalance of power. There was little or no uh, union presence, uh, basically non-existent in that sector for a long time. Uh, and you had a very stretched or overworked ombudsman. It was just a free-for-all, really. It's on quite a reasonable scale, I believe, from what you've written. Uh, I think you quote at some point that there are 100,000 workers in, in our labour market without a visa, part of a very precarious, low bargaining situation, given the nature of these temporary visas. Uh, in a sense, it was the creation uh, by the system of an underclass, you could say, and I think you describe it as such, not looked at by any side of politics in particular. It, it stood in great contrast to Australia's historical approach to migrants, where migrants were given full citizenship and access to full workers' rights, these temporary workers, it's a bit like what the Europeans have, but we've never acknowledged in our economy a guest worker ethos. That's right. I, I think that, and it's something that's developed over time. And, and, and you're right, like Australia's migration system was marked by permanent rights and, and permanency largely. Um, like, you know, you, you think of the post-war period in particular, where there was programs from, from, from Europe, you know, that's, that's, that's how my family ended up here after the war. It wasn't conditional on being here for a year or two and then sent back home. But really from the 1990s onwards, a series of programs, a series of visas were introduced that were, that were temporary in nature. You layer on top of that a dramatic expansion in international students, both the major universities, but also critically at a whole lot of private training colleges, which became in effect visa factories where the level of education would be patchy barely existent or poor. And really, it was, a, it was a path to having work rights here. So you had this system whereby through a variety of different visas and a variety of different schemes that were layered on top of each other and built up over several decades, that you ended up with a temporary temporary labour force, people with work rights of, of upwards of a million people. The only way you can really describe that as is, is a form of guest worker program. That was nothing like that several decades ago in Australia. You might have tens of thousands of people 
maximum here on temporary visas or temporary work rights. You now had a million people and conditional on that were visas that restricted their ability to work. If they breached those visas, left them open to both losing their job and, and losing their place in the country. It was a significant amount of leverage over them from employers. A lot of uh, middlemen, criminal activities, but falling below the radar, both of uh, government regulations and, and union activity, basically a labour trafficking too, and a lot of exploitation and abuse. Another low-wage paying sector that you spend a lot of time talking about, uh, beyond the farming and the horticulture and poultry and all that, is the hospitality industry. And there you tell remarkable stories, I think, about how deeply embedded in uh, the wage theft in that sector has been uh, particularly through the role of high-profile celebrity chefs. What's the basic story there? And is Rockpool the case in point with Neil Perry? I think there's, there's really quite a similar business model across um, high-end hospitality. Essentially, you know, you'd have kitchens full of chefs, again, often migrants, but also local workers. What they would be required to do, the conditions of the job and the nature of the work would mean that there weren't enough staff and they would, they would need to work regularly 15, 20 hours of unpaid overtime. That would stretch in busy periods, say around Christmas or what have you, to sometimes 30 or 40 hours of unpaid overtime. So you had people being paid close or near the minimum wage of the award, but being asked to work 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week, doing what, what are called doubles, regularly double shifts, which are 15 hour days, you know, maybe starting at nine in the morning and getting home the next morning at 1am and being paid for essentially for an eight-hour shift. And through that, and through the breaches of the workplace award in hospitality, which allowed some trade-offs for working a bit of overtime, but nothing like that, the amount of underpayment of individual workers could be many hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a week. If you're working an 80-hour week and being paid on average, say, $25, $26 an hour, this, the extent of the underpayment or wage theft is extraordinary. And this was a sector where it's glamorous. People are clamoring to get into, you know, the kitchen of, of, of a well-known chef, someone like Neil Perry or George Calambaris or uh, Guillaume Brahimi or who, whoever, whoever. And the trade-off here was that they were just regularly exploited. And so I started having people come to me from various restaurants. In the first instance, it was the Rockpool Group, which was a huge private equity-owned empire turning over $300 million plus with 15 restaurant brands. And so I have people coming from me there with their rosters and pay slips, and we started to build a picture of the, the breaches of workplace law. And then it kind of over a couple of years, you started to get stories at every, almost every major high-end restaurant. You know, there was uh, restaurants fronted by people like Heston Blumenthal, the famous British chef, Neil Perry, T. Gezard, um, Brahimi, restaurants of Chris Lucas, who's a prominent restaurateur mainly in Melbourne. And it, it just spun out. It was really, again, a story of a lack of regulation, a lack of barely zero union presence, and of kind of great imbalances of power. To these businesses were very heavily structured and corporatized for tax minimization and wealth maximization, as I understand it, through the use of, as you say, on the one hand, private equity injecting huge amounts of money. I think uh, the vehicle for the Neil Perry group was something called... One of the restaurants is called the Spice Temple, but the, 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 the eventual owner was a, a company or a, an investor called Quadrant Private Equity, who owned the who owned the group in conjunction with Perry, who was a minority shareholder. And they merged this into this giant business, loaded it with debt. 
and with the hope that they would flip it several years later at a great profit. That was the model. I spoke to former managers in the business and they described the pressure on them to cut costs, to cut labour costs, to suppress labour costs. And the end result of that was, you know, the, the people you would talk to who had kind of crushing workloads and were having their labour rights tamely breached. Speaking here on Radio Northern Beaches with our guest today, Ben Schneider, investigative journalist with The Age, who's written the book Hard Labour, Wage Theft in the Age of Inequality. And we're talking about the hospitality industry uh, in particular. Uh, this shift to private equity and big corporatized uh, tax shelters uh, in this industry is part of the structural story and the systemic story, I think, because, as you point out, this is occasioned by the big shift in power and the wealth between labour and capital that took place in Australia from the 1970s when it was nearly 60% labour share of GDP to, you know, just over 45% uh, by the time we get to 2021. That's right. Like, so, so I think when you see an individual case of wage theft, it, it, it is part of this broader trend. If you look at the historical data on income inequality in Australia, I, I think probably the low point in the last few hundred years was in the late 1970s. Like the levels of income equality or income, in, income equality were very high or income inequality were very low, far lower than they are now in, in the Scandinavian country. And then you've seen a shift over the next 40 years where the whole periods can move quite slowly, but the overall long-term trend is a, is, a, is a really quite sharp growth in inequality in Australia, income and wealth. We've had our society transformed over that period, been incredible boom in wealth. A lot of people are doing really well, but the disparities in the society are, are now quite dramatic. And you, and this is, this plays out, you know, in the low wage economy where people have both experience regularly wage theft, but also much higher levels of precarity. You're much more likely to be in a, a casual job or a gig economy job or, or, or contract work. And the security of employment isn't there. You might find out you've got to shift the next day from a text message. You can be laid off with little or no compensation or no compensation if you're a casual or depending on your contract. There's been a collapse in unionism. We've gone from a country that had 50 to 60 percent uh, union density to now where it's something of the order of like the low teens, you know, and in the private sector, even lower. Unions have vanished from the scene. Some of that's been self-inflicted, but much of it is to do with these bigger, bigger, broader changes in our economy. Chefs uh, loom large in this discussion of wage theft and uh, and they've had to pay back big amounts of money uh, in some cases already. But uh, I think you also point out that it's not just restricted to that end of the market, uh, and, uh, that a lot of run-of-the-mill cafes and bars and what have you are systemically underpaying, paying cash, etc., um, yep. and, and engaging in, in a form of wage theft at that level too, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 across hospitality and and the Fair Work Ombudsman, the regulator in this area, has done survey work looking at across sectors and and hospitality after horticulture is has the highest level of of labour law breaches. It's, it's extraordinary levels. You know, in smaller places where, of course, like when we're talking about wage theft, some of it can be inadvertent. You know, the the system can be harder to navigate, particularly for smaller players. But it's clear that a lot of it is a decision to not not comply with regulation in this area. You know, it's a conscious choice, you know, and the motivations can vary, but that's pretty clear when you look at the, the extent of it. Part of the story here, of course, is a move to deregulation and loose uh, regulation, even when regulation exists. Perhaps we could also just, while we're on the sector, looked at Heston Blumenthal, whom you've mentioned, who's a very famous UK chef who opened up a 
I think, a place called Fat Duck in Melbourne in 2014. And he was in some sort of a deal and arrangement with Crown Casino, all of which was structured in a business sense, again, to avoid paying taxes and to minimise their uh, need to uh, comply with laws and regulations. In particular, he was involved with the tax shelter in some Caribbean islands, wasn't he? That's right. So that this was a really interesting, for me, you know, it was a really interesting uh, issue to dig into. Like I, I, I got, um, I got a tip off about wage theft and underpayment. And, it, you know, by that stage, that was becoming quite routine. And I, I would look at the rosters and pay slips and you could see a, a really similar pattern that people at this Melbourne restaurant, um, this high profile Melbourne restaurant were being underpaid. The more I looked into it, the more that I, that, that, sort of struck me as really quite strange. Like it was a, it was an Australian company. It was a company that appeared to be based in Australia. It had an Australian PTYLTD designation. It was Tipsy Cake PTYLTD, but that was just on the surface. It was actually a foreign company based out of St. Kitts and Nevis, which is a really tiny Caribbean island of, I think about 10,000 people, but which is infamous, a tax haven where people route, route income through to hide ownership, pay minimal tax to get around all the obligations and some of it can be legally structured like this, but that's what it's for. It's to avoid tax, to avoid transparency. This is where this Melbourne restaurant owned by this person with a really high profile was structured. It was tightly linked to Crown Casino, which is a major employer in Melbourne and elsewhere. Eventually, after this reporting Happened. There was a Fair Work Ombudsman inquiry, and in this one single restaurant, which was called Dinner by Heston, in the end, the staff were owed more than four million dollars from wage theft. The company collapsed. There was later a liquidators report, which looked or a creditors report, which looked at how it was structured in some more detail. And it turned out that you know Heston's intellectual property was owned through a low tax structure of the European Union, and there was a an Irish couple that were getting a million pounds a year. The point about all this is that the businesses are so structured, they maximise their own wealth uh, and income yep. from their businesses. They, but they, Not only by avoiding tax, but by not complying with exploiting uh, their workforces. As you pointed out, Absolutely. the Fair Work Ombudsman in, uh, I, I don't know what it was, maybe around 2010 or beyond, um, actually called in uh, a lot of large organizations uh, beyond hospitality. There was Woolworths, that $400 million they had to pay back, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, $50 million. Apparently, even organizations like the ABC and the Red Cross and universities, and you quote that PwC, the consultants, estimated at that point that there was $1.3 billion a year in wage theft uh, that they could estimate going in through some of these things. Now, the political setting for all this is quite interesting because there were both moves to deregulate the economy and downscale the impact of unions. We mm. had we had the accord uh, with the Labour government and then we had the new right and the HR Nichols Society, didn't we? All of which seemed to add fuel to this fire. They did, yeah, and and you know it's it's like an interesting um, it's an interesting observation that this whole process really kicked out kicked off under a Labour government. Now the adjustments here at first were. A lot less harsh than they were in, say, the US where Reagan was in power or the UK where Thatcher broke the unions. But nevertheless, there was still a, a diminution of, of, of the power of, of labor, of organized labor. And you started to see significant increases in inequality through that period through the 1980s and 1990s. And, you know, the trade off was the social wage, things like Medicare, super welfare payments and the like. But there was the start of a reduction of the the power of organised labour and of unions. And that was accelerated through the 1990s onwards with the Conservative government. And 
the long-term shift from the 1980s onwards in the Accord has been what, you know, what, what I mentioned earlier was that sharp reduction in union membership. Now, some of that's technological, some of that's a decline in manufacturing, but there's also deliberate policy choices here to restrict rights and restrict the rights to strike and the like. You know, then you have also a whole lot of economic policies that move in, move in a similar direction. So we've, we've, we've transformed the economy and society over that time. And it's been, in some respects, with some important tweaks, a, a bipartisan project. The big story that you tell in a number of chapters is a fascinating one about the situation of unions on all this that you've mentioned, uh, and a rather paradoxical situation that seemed to arise in the strategy of a very major union, the SDA, Shop Distributive Allied Workers, I guess, that is in operates in the retail sector. And it seemed, for its own survival, to have become very close to big business to try and ensure its own survival and membership, but in the process, arguably, uh, fostered and condoned even, perhaps, significant wage theft uh, in the case of, for example, Coles and McDonald's. Yeah, this is probably some of the most important work done through this area was was around this. You had agreements struck between the SDA and big business, Coles, Woolworths, McDonald's, KFC, covering probably upwards of half a million workers. And these are the biggest employers in Australia. The three biggest employers in Australia are Coles, Woolworths and McDonald's. What was a feature of all these agreements was that more than half the employees were paid below the award, the minimum wage. And now how this was done was that they would trade off penalty rates, all or most of the penalty rates and overtime, in exchange for small increases in the hourly rate. Now, what that meant in a 24-7 business was that people who worked at nights or weekends, which is a lot of people, could be considerably worse off, you know, in some cases by tens, not individually, but collectively, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on the size of the company. Because they're giving Um, away their their penalty rates for those outside hours, are they? Uh, Yeah. And the trade-off presumably is with a a small increase in the base rate of pay. That's right. And, And that meant that these, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers would be much better off or better off being paid the minimum wage of the award, which had these guaranteed minimums. So these were traded off. They were presented to the Fair Work Commission as a fait accompli between the employer and this major union, the SDA. And at that point, it appeared it was just a rubber stamp. The commission would see both parties say, well, this agreement's fine. It passes what's called the better off overall test, which is meant to be the protection that people are paid the minimum wage. They were rubber stamped, they were legally approved, and so was the wage theft, in effect. But what emerged through this was, you know, challenges to these agreements in the first instance by someone called Josh Cullinan um, and a whole lot of other people who, who who fought this. I got involved in reporting the detail of these agreements, going through the, the rosters and and the like. And it was really clear you had, you had, through the collusion of the SDA, extensive, extensive wage underpayment. It was an incredible thing for a union to have done, to have allowed agreements to be struck that shortchanged its members and workers in low-paid work. What was the union getting out of it? What was the deal they got, the quid pro quo as a union, from doing these deals? Well, this is, this is not something that they would ever admit to. But what they got was a, was a good working relationship with major companies. And that, that allowed them to be there at inductions, to sign up members and to have significant numbers of members across these low wage sectors. For instance, McDonald's is pretty notorious around the world for being extremely anti-union. It, it fights unions wherever they appear. But the one place or one of the places they didn't do that was in Australia. They allowed inductions and for the SDA to sign up young people into the union. Now, why was that? 
because in the end, these agreements meant that on our estimate, that there was McDonald's and its franchisees were saving tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year from these agreements that traded off basic penalty rates for next to nothing. You had kids working for $9, $10 an hour, not getting penalty rates they should have. Um, And so this collusion appeared to be about the union having more members. So the union was paying a fee to these major employers worth 10%. Now, payroll deduction is, you know, like it's... um, it's, it's highly automated. The cost to the company of, 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 of doing the deductions would be, you know, a, a tiny fraction of the fees. But the SDA were paying them 10% of the cost of the fees. So there's tens of millions of dollars going from the SDA to major employers for payroll deduction. They were paying them. And as a result, they got a heap of members and they got a heap of influence within the Labor Party. Talking with Ben Schneider's investigative journalist with The Age about his book Hard Labour, Wage Theft in the Age of Inequality. The Fair Work Ombudsman or whatever made a decision, I believe, what, 2019, that restored in the face of these SDA agreements the minimum award and the full penalty rates. It it varied from company to company, but the, the key decision from this, and there was a number of decisions over that period, was in 2016 when the full bench of the Fair Work Commission found that the Coles Agreement failed the better off overall test and there was significant underpayment for some workers. Um, and from there, you know, the arrangement between SDA and big business really started to fall apart. They weren't able to strike any more agreements like this. A lot of the agreements were either renegotiated or, or, or they went back to the award. So people started to be paid their basic entitlements. And that was a process that played out over, over many years, really. For one example, like, uh, Domino's, which is the big, a pretty big pizza company, Deutsche Bank did an estimate on how much they were saving from an SDA agreement. And it was of the order of $40 million a year. Now you've got much bigger companies than Domino's who yeah. had similar agreements. You know, and in the case of, of McDonald's, we did our own estimates extrapolating from the data we had. And, you know, conservatively, you're getting, you'd be getting close to well over a hundred million dollars a year. The issue, that, the issue uh, is, is still with us, isn't it? In some senses, because part of it has to do with what you referred to as the better off test in the industrial relations system, where these agreements were subject to the uh, attestation that the agreements made workers better off. The definition of better off was always contested. And I believe Morrison in 2020 wanted to change it to an overall better off test. And that didn't succeed. It ends up being a, like just a, a clause in the Fair Work Act. But it's it's really the key issue. Tweaking that or changing that will change the paying conditions of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of low paid workers. It's the kind of thing that work choices got rid of in the first instance, which was the no disadvantage test and which then resulted in, you know, significant reduction in, in wages and conditions for low wage workers. So something like the better off overall test is, is just central to the system as we've got it here in Australia. Um, and tweaking that or moving that around to allow individual workers to be paid below award really opens the gates significant wage cuts in reality. They've got limited bargaining power, limited ability to to be paid more or to move into better paid employment, depending on your skills and experience. It's, it's a really significant thing to make those changes. That didn't happen in 2020. There's been subsequent tweaks to the Act. You know, there hasn't been substantial changes really since the Fair Work Act was introduced. The politics of this has always been rather difficult and contentious because as I read your book, Uh, on all these cases and issues over the years. The union movement itself was kind of defending some of these actions of the STA through the ACTU. Uh, The Labour Party, for its own reasons, was not moving, and, and the Liberals, for their own reasons, too, took no action. So as we conclude, 
And what do you see as the outlook on this wage theft issue, both in terms of uh, the newly elected Labour government or, or any other action through unions and workers? Um, yeah, I think we're at a really interesting point here. There was a initial changes to workplace laws last year to, to kind of a move towards multi-employer bargaining. It's really unclear how significant or not that will be and how much impact that will be. This is going to be an issue that will be something that the this government, if it lasts a few terms, will have to confront. They wanted to see wages going again. They wanted to, implicit in that is they wanted to rebuild the relative power of workers and unions. How are they going to do that and navigate that against powerful vested interests? You get significant pushback from any changes that do that. But, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, as you said in the introduction, Michael, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing real wages haven't moved you know, depending on the time frame, have gone down a little or gone up a little. Like that's an, that's an extraordinary long period of wage stagnation. Um, wouldn't have had something like that in Australia, probably going back to the 19th century. How are you going to do that when there's entrenched interests that are comfortable with the status? You've got to, you've got to have some some bravery and be be willing to do that and, and have have a zeal to take that on. Time's up, Ben, and thank you very much for joining us, uh, Radio Northern Beaches, to talk about your book, Hard Labour: Wage Theft in the Age of Inequality. A pretty sorry story, I think it has to be said, in, in terms of flat wages and uh, rising inequality and rising wealth parities, and for sharing some of the stories and analysis from your book, Hard Labour, published by Scribe. Thanks very much, Ben. Thanks for having me, Michael.